Well, good evening and welcome once again to uh, Grace Community Church's overview of church history uh, on the shoulders of giants. Uh, we've got a treat for you this evening. We've got a special guest pastor going to be talking with us as we look at the life and theology of Martin Luther. But before we begin, Brad, is it okay if I ask you to open us in a word of prayer? Sure. Well, Father, uh, we come tonight with eager and uh, eager hearts full of anticipation. Uh, we are grateful for the ways that you have used uh, people in, in, in history to uh, promulgate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we recognize that these were flawed people, as well as great men and women of God, we are encouraged to think that you might use us as well. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to one of the, the most important uh, times of the history of the church and also one of the most uh, important, certainly a towering figure over much of what we think and believe uh, in our day. Martin Luther, just pray that you'll be with uh, our dear brother and guest speaker, Denton White, as he shares with us tonight. Open our minds, open our, our minds to the truth uh, of, uh, of the truths that were so important to Martin Luther and are so important to us, and open our hearts to you, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I guess it would be good for you to know uh, who's going to be speaking with us tonight. And I had the privilege of not very long ago meeting Denton. And uh, actually, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I tried to visit your church earlier this week to finalize a few things. Uh, although what I saw sort of disturbed me a little bit. I know you were sort of channeling Luther, but uh, well, maybe I should just show you and you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for all those who uh, have Catholic backgrounds, but it's just a, just a joke to lighten us up here. But uh, incidentally, that is kind of the the language that Martin Luther would have used at yeah, times. <laughs> well, for for a proper introduction, I'm going to toss it over to Brad. Well, I'm very excited that you're here tonight. I'm I'm just so grateful that we're able to do this class on church history, but. Especially tonight, I've been excited about this night. Denton White, uh, my very dear friend, was pastor for a long time at Grace Presbyterian in Fuquay, Arena, and now pastor of St. Paul's in Whispering Pines and St. James in Southern Pines, uh, North Carolina, two different congregations. And so Denton has gone from Presbyterian to to Lutheran, and we're gonna. We, he he actually filmed a video today about some of the reasons for that shift. But I just want to say this. Uh, Denton is probably easily the most sophisticated theological mind that I'm blessed to be in connection with day in and day out. I mean, not that we get together every day. We try to touch base every week, and every couple of weeks we get together, and it's always, all we talk about is is scripture and theology. And uh, so I'm excited that he's going to share and Jump in and ask questions at any time. Just he doesn't mind you. Just just say, hey, I, "Could you clarify something on this for me?" And so, take it away, and then we'll we'll 
cut you off if you get you know too far Lutheran. We'll say that, that's, no, no, no. We that's essential. Over. That's essential. Uh, uh, thanks, Brad. Uh, I don't deserve any of that, but now you know why I hang out with him all the time because he uh, actually just as a note before we begin, uh, uh, I I don't know how to be a pastor. I'll just be honest with you. I spent 20 years in the service as a sergeant. I live it 24-7. I can't get out of my system. So hanging out with Brad helps me know how to be a pastor. Right? What exactly? Tell him exactly what you did in the uh, military. Oh, I was an instructor of ground combat skills for security police. <laughs> so it's not exactly pastoral work. Training, yeah. Right. And so, uh, but Brad has been, he was everything seminary wasn't for me in pastoral theology and continues to be. So, and I'm not kidding around about that. I mean it. Uh, but with respect to the class tonight, uh, I was an instructor, so that's what I did. So you just blurting out questions or whatever doesn't bother me. Actually, I feed off of that. So don't feel at all like this is a lecture because it isn't not from my perspective. So uh, ask questions, uh, whatever's on your mind, and I'll do my best to, to, to help with it. Um, the, the slide that you see up there right now are some references, so if you're like me and you're one of those people that are just like really super obsessive about stuff, these are some source documents that I use for uh, just the, the parts of the lecture I'll give tonight, uh, especially in the study of the life of Luther. So if you're ever interested, those are some good resources for you. Uh, so let's jump in with Martin Luther's life at 1505 because I don't know if you're all that interested to know, he was a young farm boy, grown up in rural Germany. You know, I, I don't know how formative all that was. One thing that was formative is that he came from a devout family. Uh, Luther did not come from a background that were you know, marginally Christian, mostly pagan. Uh, they were a devout family from the get-go. He was not a guy that uh, kind of was on hiatus from Christianity you know, kind of running around doing his own thing. He, it, that wasn't him. It was never him. Uh, he was always devout. He always believed in God. He always believed in the Trinity. He was always a Christian person in accordance with the Christianity that he understood and knew. Uh, what led up to the 1505, some of you already know, don't you? Yeah, the lightning strike. Because uh, he was on his way to law school. Actually, he'd taken a big gob of money that his dad had given him uh, for graduating and bought uh, the, the set, the finest set of law books you could buy. And uh, then, wham, the lightning strike happens, and he takes the books back, turns them back in, gets his money back. Uh, but in what you may or may not know is he, two years before that, he almost killed himself because he, back in those days, you, know, you kind of had to take care of yourself. So he had a dagger that was kind of in his pocket <laughs> and when he rode out of the gates of the, the enclosed city there, he cut himself and he cut an artery. Almost bled to death. If he hadn't been so close to the city, he probably would have. So within a span of a couple of years, <laughs> he almost died twice and so he thought, you know, maybe, maybe I should be doing something else with my life. So that's how he ends up at the, the Erfurt Monastery. Erfurt Monastery was an Augustinian monastery. Uh, very esteemed. 
uh, called the, the, the Black Monastery, uh, not because there was something dark and sinful about it, but because the, of, its, uh, of its devotion, they were known as Augustinian observants. And, um, and they, in, the, in this monastery that he entered, um, it may be helpful to know that the vow to get in was to be in search of a merciful God. So how many of you have seen that movie, the latest movie on Luther? You know, the, uh, you know he, he wanted to find the gracious God, the merciful God. Well, actually, you know, that wasn't a personal conviction initially. That was part of entering this monastery because the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt was already in reform. Not, not in the way you're thinking, though. Not Protestant Reformation. But there was already a sense that the church was going out to sea. You know, it was, it was degraded to in, incredible degrees. And we'll talk about his trip to Rome in a little bit. But Rome was, you know, anything but the celestial city. Hmm. And uh, so the, the folks that were called, they were actually called a general right, that supervised the, the operations of the monastery, had already begun to reform what, what we're going to teach and what, how we're going to emphasize the Christian life as you're living it here. And so to get in, you know, you had to go through an observation period and a question and answer, you know, why are you really here? Because they wanted to know that you felt like you were called by God to be here. They didn't want you if, if you weren't. You know, they, they, they took this very seriously. And um, so the vow was, do you promise to be in search of the merciful God, the gracious God? Right? And if you didn't make that promise, and, if you didn't, and he took it very seriously, uh, then you couldn't be part of their order. And so, you know, so it wasn't, uh, he didn't just start out of nowhere. He started from somewhere. And it began really there at the monastery. Uh, if you'll look on the slide there, there's a very important name there, Johannes von Staups. Staups can't be overestimated in how he influenced Luther. Now, I think on the movie, you see him every now and then. You know, he's kind of like, Luther, get a hold of yourself, you know, <laughs> or something like that. You know, but the, the truth of the matter is, he was the general over the monastery. And he was, in, he was an incredible, reform-minded general. And when Luther started his studies, he was starting his studies with Stouts kind of overwatching what he was doing. And later on in Luther's life, uh, when he was an old guy, he said, I have done nothing with my life but find the proof from Scripture of what von Stolps has taught me. So if you want to know how important he was to Luther, that kind of lets you know that as an older man, looking back on his life, you know, the way he looked at it, the things that he told me, the things he said to me, I wanted to find those things if they were true. You know, it was almost too good to be true, and he just wanted to find out if it was. So uh, Johannes von Stolps was an incredibly important figure for Luther. Um, 1507, Luther is ordained. And you remember in the movie the <coughs> meltdown he has at the altar? 
He's like shaking and things are spilling. Well, that's, that's true. That's what happened. He really did have a, he really did have a, a, a kind of a mid-mass crisis. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it wasn't because he was, you know, he had stage fright. That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was Luther took all this stuff really seriously. Hmm. Uh, and he really believed, here I am uh, standing before Almighty God. I'm reciting these prayers of the Mass. And by the way, do you all know what Mass means? Just as an aside. Mass is the order of service. You know how you got a bulletin when you come in on Sunday morning at tells you the way you're going to do things. Well, at that time, the Mass was, um, it was put together by folks that felt that this thing has to be done this way or else God doesn't hear it, right? And if God doesn't hear it, then the whole thing's ineffective. And so the Mass is the order of service. So anytime I say that, you know, kind of think in those terms, that the Mass is like the things you have to say and the procedures you have to do to make it work, right? So, sorry for the aside, but that might be helpful. So, in the midst of saying this Mass, he realizes, I'm talking to God. You know, God is listening to me, and it overwhelmed him. You know, psychologically, it got the better of me. He's got, he, he was like, I have no business doing this. Who am I to be doing this work? And it wasn't, you know, and of course, modern-day translators of Luther look back on that and say, you know, well, what kind of crazy kook was this? Well, well, he wasn't. Uh, think of yourself as going into uh, the, the Oval Office, right? And you're going to have an audience with the President of the United States, whether you like him or not, right? Uh, well, you, you don't just take that casually, right? No, nobody really takes it casually, that is thinking about it, right? Because this is not something that happens every day. Well, now just magnify that. You know kind of how Luther feels when he's standing at the altar saying these prayers, and he believes God is watching me. He's looking at me. I'm full of sin, you know. <laughs> what am I doing here? And so, you know, so that helps. You know, he just believed everything that was going on. He believed with all his heart. He's very passionate that way. Johannes Nathan uh, was John, uh, Luther's primary theological supervisor and tutor. Have you heard that name before? Uh, that's largely because uh, he didn't play a major role in reformational work, but he played a major role in Luther's training. Uh, when I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, I had David Wells. David Wells was my professor. I mean, he's written like tons of books and, you know, and everybody reads them and talks about how wonderful and smart he is, right? Uh, so that was a big deal, to be able to sit there for a semester or two under David Wells and receive you know, insight and thought that he has accomplished over uh, his entire life. That was a big deal. Well, that was Johannes Nathan in the, in the Augustinian monastery. He was the brain. And so when you studied, that's who you went to. That's who you lectured with. That's who supervised what you were doing. So he had a major, major influence on Luther. But as you already know, because we're going to get to that part of the story, it wasn't 
in the direction that you might think it would go. <laughs> um, which, uh, that's the second part of the slide, the sentences of Peter Lombard. Uh, that was the theology of the day for the Augustinian monastery. Uh, it was uh, basically a commentary by Beale on the sentences of, Mar of, of Peter Lombard. And there's just tones, volumes, and that's what you study. If you were going to prepare to do the mass, well, this is how you prepare, right? So just like, you know, you know Brad and I and, uh, went to seminary, well, that's what you do to prepare for ministry, right? You sit through classes, you, you read all these volumes and, and all that stuff, and that's what Luther's doing. And so he studies Beale and uh, uh, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, which, by the way, uh, we can't talk about very much tonight, but there's just absolutely no way to put into words how important he was to Luther. Uh, it, it, uh, it, he was Martin Luther's Brad Talley, <laughs> right? I mean, he, he helped Luther articulate things and say things in ways that Luther didn't quite know how to articulate. And, uh, I mean, just, he was invaluable. So, later on in life, uh, uh, Melanchthon said, look, Luther could quote you entire pages from memory of Beale's work. I can't even quote you my wife's cell phone number. You know, it's, <laughs> it's in my phone, right? And so he studied these, studied these things. He was deeply involved with these things. And, uh, and, and, and Melanchthon would talk about his uh, marginal notes. But his marginal notes were rebuttals, largely. They weren't agreements. They weren't, oh, I see now how this works. Instead, they were, well, how can this actually be true? Lombard, um, anybody remember Peter Lombard? Um, and his sentences. He was liberal before liberal was cool. <laughs> uh, contemporary of Anselm, correct? Am mm -hmm. I correct in mm -hmm. that? And uh, sort of the moral influence theory of the atonement um, back in the 1000s, right in there. Mm -hmm. That So Luther is not liking what he's reading. Right, he's already not buying into the system. Uh, so, you know, so it wasn't like Luther wasn't well-trained. Uh, he was well-trained, and that's important for later on and how, you know, why we think of him as such a, uh, an important reformer is because he, he, he knew what he was talking about when he was talking about uh, the scholastic influence over the church in those mm -hmm. days. Yeah, let's talk about that visit to Rome. <laughs> uh, Luther, along with another person, was actually sent to Rome on a business trip. Uh, they were going there to argue on behalf of Stalps and some concerns Stalps had with the Holy See. Right? Basically, we want some permissions to do these things. We want some help on these other things. And that's what they were there to do. He, he really didn't go there as a pilgrimage, but it kind of turned into that. Uh, and although he'd heard rumors that Rome is, the best, is a place best left to itself. Uh, he, you know, he was excited to go. 
and he was excited to be part of all of it. And when he got there, what he found was something very, very different than he had ever imagined he would find. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, it was like when uh, I went to watch the New England Patriots play for the first time in my life. Been a New England Patriots fan all my life. So I drive up to Foxborough Stadium only to find out it's a dump. <laughs> you know, the, the, the steps are all crumbling. There's barbed wire every place to keep people from climbing over the top. And I'm like, oh, wow, this isn't anything like I thought I would find. Well, what Luther found in Rome was the moral equivalent. Uh, there were brothels set up for priests and bishops and cardinals. Uh, <coughs> Uh, there was uh, some way of spending money on an effort for salvation. Just figure out how to make money off of it. Salvation became, was a consumer uh, product in Rome. You know, I'm, I'm putting it in our terms, but you know, that's what he finds. And uh, he's, he's kind of appalled by it, but he's, he's kind of like, you know, I guess I'm a country bumpkin. Maybe I just didn't realize you know, the way it's going to be. Well, uh, while he's there, he figures, well, I've got some kin folks I want to save, particularly Grandpa, you know, because I'm real sure Grandpa uh, is uh, Linerman. Grandpa Linerman uh, is in, and by the way, Luther, right? Luther is uh, how, what his name became after he entered the monastery before there was Martin Luther, because Germans don't really have a TH sound. Uh, <laughs> so he enters the monastery, and that's how we get the name Luther, but... Uh, so he decides, oh, I'm going to get Grandpa out of purgatory. So he, he uh, gets in line to, and you literally had to get in line, to wait your turn to do whatever it was that you were going to do, and to go up the Santa uh, uh, Scala, right? So what you do is you get on your knees, and you go up one step at a time, and you say, an Our Father, we would call that the Lord's Prayer. Right? And each step you say that until you get to the top and you do it on your knees. And, uh, and he, he, was, he loved Grandpa, so he thought, well, I want to get him out of purgatory. Don't want him to suffer anymore. Later on, when Luther was old, and we, we, we just take it on good faith that this is true, uh, his son Paul related that that. His dad had told him, Luther had told him, you know, when I got to the top of those steps, something rushed through my mind. How do I know this is true? And that was significant. Because he'd already been in studies for a while. And he thought to himself, how do I know this is true? Well, and that started to color the rest of his trip to Rome. You know, as he encountered... (laughs) this thing and the other thing and all kinds of ways to get salvation, many of which you couldn't, uh, in one instance, I can't remember what it was he was trying to do, but uh, he actually waited in line so long that they said, you just as well forget it, you're not going to get in today, you know, so you, know, so you kind of went on your way, it's like being at the fair, except you're trying to purchase salvation for somebody. <laughs> then can I, can I break in sure. for just a yeah. moment, yeah. late 2006 when I first met Joe Hunziker, he lived in Rome, and I stayed with him there for mm. about four or five days. And 
And he took me down to, I think it's St. John's now, the same steps. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and I took pictures of people crawling up the steps on their oh, knees. And wow. he said that yeah. on certain holy days, like at Easter and Christmas, he said the lines are stretched for blocks and blocks because you are promised salvation. You, yeah. you get to bypass purgatory if you go up on that day. Wow. And that's, to, and that's in 2006. Mm-hmm. That's now. Yeah, yeah. Been a resurgence in indulgence sales. Yeah, yeah. Here lately, have the, has it really? You're, yeah, you're, no, you're, no yeah. kidding, no kidding. <laughs> Little revival in that. Um, so the the trip to Rome doesn't go very well, uh, but it does because what Luther recognizes is the problem with the church is theological. It's it's not the brothels. <laughs> The brothels are a symptom of what's wrong. Mm -hmm. What's wrong is theological. What's wrong is... Oh, and by the way, another very important part of that trip is that that deeply influenced Luther was the open blasphemies that he couldn't believe he was here. They actually... The priests would stand in the streets singing made-up songs about the Eucharist or the, the Holy Communion that were extremely derogatory. And he just couldn't believe he was hearing these things. You know, he, he just couldn't believe it. It'd be like y'all coming to church here and people standing out in the hallway making jokes about Jesus. He'd be like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what kind of church is this? And so, you know, just think about how you would feel. Well, that's the way he felt. He was like, there's something deadly wrong here. And, and, and so uh, it really... He just knew at that point the church is, we're, we're going the wrong way. And the reason we're going the wrong way is because what we're teaching and what we're believing. Um, so uh, after he gets back from Rome, he, uh, by the way, the business trip didn't work out. They didn't get anything out of it. <laughs> uh, so they go back home, and, he, and uh, the primary things he started to do were to lecture. By the way, he leaves the Augustinian monasteries farmed out, if you will, by Stouts, because Stouts wants him to do it, to, uh, to lecture in Wittenberg. And he, he starts working on lectures in Psalms and Romans and Galatians. Far more than that. But these are the three where he started getting a biblical worldview. Uh, he just immersed himself in, in, in Hebrew and in Greek. And then he would read Latin through Hebrew and Greek. And he would say... Okay, this is what I see. And like any good professor does, that's what a professor does. You know? uh, so it wasn't novel. Everybody did that. Uh, and he would bring, bring out in his lectures what he was finding in the scriptures. And when he would bring those out in his lectures, students were like, dude, this doesn't sound like, <laughs> doesn't sound like what I'm supposed to be believing here. Right? But that's okay because as a professor, you had license to do that. You could do that, even back in those days. Uh, but when he started writing, and that's the next part of the slide, that's when things changed. Because it was one thing for you to stand in front of your class for that semester and lecture on Psalms and say, oh, they've got it all wrong. Let me tell you the way it is. It's another thing to start writing things for publication. Now, it's important that you know he wrote in Latin. Uh, and the reason that's important is because he wrote in Latin because he wanted this to be read by the academy. 
right? Now, the things got translated into German and disseminated quickly. He didn't plan on that, right? That just kind of took place. But what, when, he, when you write in Latin, what you're saying is, I want to talk about this stuff to the, to the elite, you see? And this is how you get in trouble, is <laughs> because when you're saying, I have a dispute. Um, so it begins with a dispute. Well, it didn't really begin, but one of the key initial documents is a disputation against scholastics, in which he farms out what he doesn't like about Beale. <laughs> right? So he writes, he writes in, a, in a disputation format for the day, these are the things I don't like, and I want to debate them. I want to tell you why those things are wrong and why we shouldn't believe them. So that's, and it was pivotal because that gets folks' attention, right? So it will be just like somebody in the church, you know, if you're here on Sunday morning and Brad's your pastor and someone says, well, you know what? I'm going to write a letter to all the members of the congregation and say, I want to talk about Brad and what he said in that sermon, but Brad's not invited. <laughs> right? Well, that's kind of the way it was. If you were the Pope, you know, and this monk is lecturing and writes this disputation up and, send, you know, makes a proclamation to the authorities in your area, let's talk about the Pope and let's talk about the Curia and how they've got this wrong. Well, you know, that's a little offensive. You know, so that, it gets started with that. And we're going to see a little section out of that disputation in a little bit. Uh, the disputation against indulgences, which is the famous one, right? The 95 Thesis. That's what gets nailed up to the Wittenberg uh, castle door, which, of course, that wasn't unique at all. That was, that was typical. He had written it in Latin, right? This was not for public consumption. This was, hey, let's debate these things. Let me tell you why this stuff isn't in the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's not there. Let me tell you why. But... That particular document was torn off of there and translated into German and disseminated very widely. And Which that, was a new thing. It was very new. Yeah, they, that just didn't happen. It wasn't supposed to happen anyway. The printing press and... Yep. So once the news gets out, folks are like, hey, there's a guy on our home team because he's German, Right. And he's taking issue with some of these things that we kind of feel like are unfair, right? So it becomes very popular. Uh, that, both those are in 1517. But pivotal, pivotal is the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518. Because in the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518, what you see in Luther, what you see in his development, is he is moving away from polemical Theology. Now, the first two documents are polemical. I am against this. I am against that. I am against, you know. But the 1518 disputation is what I find Scripture to teach. Hmm. Right? It's pivotal. Because now he's transitioning from just being a guy who's complaining about church doctrine to saying, this is what the Bible seems to teach. Right? And I want to talk about it. I want to debate it. So it's in, in uh, have, you, have you heard um, the, the theology of glory? Have you ever heard that term? They better. Yeah, theology of glory versus theology of the cross. 
theology of glory, what do I do to make God like me, right? Theology of the cross, what does the loving God do to save sinners? That's what the Heidelberg Disputation starts to outline. You know, it's the very beginnings. It's rudimentary in what we would consider. It's not, you know, it's not farmed out all the way. It's not totally cultivated. But the roots are there. The seeds are there. Um, Babylonian captivity of the church written in 1520, straight up, in your face, against everything Rome stands for, right? The sacramentalism. Yeah, what I mean when I use that word, because there's lots of meanings to that word, sacramentalism in the church was that sacraments worked all by themselves. God had invested water to give you uh, the new life, a new principle of life, that would enable you to live a Christian life and be saved. Uh, penance, right? The penance that the priest would give you if you fell from your baptismal grace would empower you to life, right? All on its own. You did the penance, but the penance gave you the power to gain new life. Uh, the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, wasn't, celebrated very often back in those days. It, it was nothing like it is today. Um, but it was nonetheless an important pillar. And in sacramentalism, uh, bread changed to body, wine changed to blood, and that gave you the grace from God to get your life straight, get your life right. And it just happened all on its own. All you had to do was eat and drink. There was no faith involved. You just did it, and it did it. Now, that was one side of the Babylonian captivity of the church. It just showed in all these biblical ways how this is just so wrong. You know, there's no faith in it. There's no Christ in it. And the other side was <clears throat> sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism means the priest has to do it, or you don't get it. Right? So the priest stands up there, and if he doesn't do all the, the mass correctly, guess what you get? Nothing, right? You're, you're, you're a church, you know, it's like, you know, Brad's preaching, and he doesn't say it just right, you get nothing, right? As if God has totally invested himself in Brad and in no other way. And if he doesn't do it right, you get nothing from God. That's sacerdotalism. And in the Babylonian captivity of the church, Luther just refutes that from a biblical standpoint. And this is a true break with Rome at this point. He doesn't mean it to be. He still wants to just get people on the same page here, the Bible. But the way that it was read by the authorities was total heresy on their part. Well, he was so gracious. I don't see how they missed yeah. his intent. <laughs> I know he's so kind and it kind of is a reigning spirit. Uh, no, he was pretty brutal. <laughs> Uh, so Babylonian captivity of the church. And the reason I'm pointing out these documents is because these documents show the evolution of the reformer. <clears throat> this is what's happening to him more than it's more than he's not doing nearly as much as something's happening to him. And that something is happening to him because of scripture. Because when you spend that time in scripture, that's what happens, right? Unless you're, you know. And so finally, you know, there are two other things. One I left off there. On Christian Living was written straight to Pope Leo. Uh, on Christian Freedom, 
was about justification by faith in grace alone. I mean, it's, it's like writing the President of the United States and saying, uh, this is how wrong you are, but I know you don't mean it, right? Because there was a big letter you know, that w- went with that, he called it a tract, it's a book, right? Uh, that went with it and said, oh, Leo, I know you don't mean it, but this is what's being done in your name, <laughs> right? These things are being taught and being said. What it ends up being is it's just diplomatic. He knows Leo's not going to find this. He's not going to be happy with this, but he's being diplomatic. He's been kind. And so he commits and says, this document on Christian freedom is dedicated to Pope Leo. <laughs> right? And out it goes. And, uh, but 1525, uh, his, uh, his, the, the work he considered most important was bondage of the will. Bondage of the will makes complete break with scholasticism. Scholasticism believed that there was an integrity to demand that God interacted with. Bondage of the will says, the Bible says, you're dead in your sins. There is no integrity. There's nothing. God must bring you alive from the dead. Okay, sorry about that. So, uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, at, any point, at any point, does Luther switch from writing in Latin to over to German yeah. so that the masses can side with him, I guess? Right. Understand what... uh, it sure does. Right here, at 1521, things start to change. So you're tracking. I love that. You're li- I'm actually saying something meaningful. Uh, <laughs> but that's exactly right. He, once, once the break with Rome occurs at the excommunication... Uh, he dedicates himself to the masses after that. It's 100% who can I serve now? Obviously, I'm not serving the Curia in Rome, the Congress. Curia is like the Congress. Uh, and I'm not serving the Pope. So things begin to change at that point. Uh, January 3rd, 1521, he's excommunicated. And we all know what he did with that. Right? He just burned it. Right? And... Uh, in, 15, in April 18, 1521, the Diet of Worms was a very long session. Y'all know that? It was, a, it was a long, it was like when your legislature goes into session, right? And then they break for, you know, the holiday without doing anything. Uh, <laughs> well, the Diet of Worms was kind of like that, you know. It, it went on for a long time. But in, on April 18th, well, actually before that, but that's when he showed up. Because they summoned him and they said, hey... We're here discussing things, and by the way, you need to pack your little bags and get over here, right? So he goes. And when he gets there, he thinks, we're going to discuss things, <laughs> right? Because he's naive. And, and people warned him and said, you're not going to discuss things, Luther. This is bad news. You shouldn't go. He goes, no, it'll be all right. They'll hear me. They'll understand. So he goes, only to find that... Uh, Basically, they're not going to ask him questions about, so why do you understand it this way, Luther? Uh, They just say, look, this is the way it is, Luther. You're going to hell unless you recant these things. And 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 we're going to send you there. Yeah, and we're going to send you there, by the way. That's our job, to send you there, quickly. Uh, And so that's where you get this very famous quote from. Because at the end of it all, you know, he did argue. He argued quite a bit with them, actually. And they, 
they said, look, we're not interested in arguments here. We're not debating this, Luther. You're wrong for what you've written, especially Babylonian captivity of the church. Big deal. Because that, once again, it condemns sacramentalism, salvation by your taking of the sacraments, or, uh, and then sacerdotalism, the priest has to do all that for you, or you don't have any good out of it anyway. Right? He, and those two things were a big deal to Rome. Um, so in the end, he, he doesn't stand up with a flag and say, here I stand. You know, actually didn't do that. You know, he was standing in front before them, and he did say, and, and, and it was recorded by witnesses, you know, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot, will not recant, meaning recant his works. Uh, for going against my conscience is neither safe nor salutary. Uh, I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. And he really meant God help me. Because the whole church in its authority structure is against him at this point. It's against him. Now, to capture some of the angst of where he is, and by the way, I'm, I'm a patriot. I'm not a communist. But just think how you would be received if you took a stand, did a bunch of communist writings, and then stood up in front of the United States of America and said, we're getting this all wrong, people. We're all wrong. We're doing it the wrong way. This is the way to go. Mao Zedong live forever, you know, <laughs> right? How would you be received, right? The whole, the whole United States would condemn you and say, you're, you're crazy, you're wrong. Let me tell you, that's not overstating Luther's situation. The whole Roman Catholic Church is saying, you're wrong, Luther. And Luther had a lot of doubts about whether or not he was right or not. And he said many prayers, God, why would I think these things? How can I be right? That's the part in the little quote that is very important for us today, 21st century people. Conscience. He was convicted in his conscience and he believed that the Holy Spirit actually did interact with our conscience. He believed that with all his heart. And he believed that the Holy Spirit interacted with our conscience through the Word. And he believed that because the Word told him that. And he, he just refused to let it go. And so he didn't. Um, this is a great quote by Heiko Obrin. Um, <laughs> It was a matter of life, not thought, study, reflection, or meditation, but of life in the most comprehensive sense of the word. From now on, the life of the church and the life of Christians in the world would be the theme that guided and shaped all that he did and all he wrote. And this is, uh, Oberman is an authority on Luther that uh, even Yale is willing to publish. (laughs) Uh, he, He really gets where Luther's heart was. Luther was not this kind of fly-by-night kind of guy. He, he was not a small-talk person. Uh, he believed what he believed, and he believed all his might. And his conviction was the church is going the wrong way. And the Bible, not me, but the Bible, is the road out of this mess. And uh, Overman observes and says, after that, 1521, Dido Burns, uh, this was... This was the beginning of something very different for Luther and the rest of his life. So I just covered those elements of his life that leads up to 
Luther the theologian, you know, that I thought maybe that'd be more interesting for you. Than, uh, yes, sir. Uh, would you say that that he, when he was excommunicated, and, and he sort of ignored it or didn't acknowledge it? I mean, would he sort of say, "Well, no, I'm not excommunicated." You know, I mean, did he still think of himself as part of the church, or did he did he think now I'm not in the church and I'm doing something? Uh, no, Luther really did think he was still part of the church. He thought that the Pope had acted against any authority that Scripture had given him. And, and he really believed that. He believed the Pope was exceeding his authority on excommunicating anybody you know, in that way. And that's very different than earlier on. In 1517, he would not have thought that. But by 1521, he did. It, it makes me think of, of the... Um it's Amon, was the the Amish, the guy, the founder of the Amish okay, sect. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he, I think it was him who, a bunch of, or it might have been Menno Simmons, the Mennonite guy. Right. I forget one of those guys, but yeah. he was making a lot of trouble, and the, all the elders like called him in and said, you know, similar to this on a much smaller scale, and then essentially, ultimately excommunicated him. Mm-hmm. And he said, "No, I excommunicate you." I mean, and that was kind of his right. response was, you know, you, I'm in. You're, you know, you're the one that are right. out. Right. Yeah, I think that was Amon because Simmons came first, and then yeah, it was the Simmons Mennonites was... that kicked him out, and he was like, no, 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 you know. And that kind of sounds like this to me, like right. Luther saying, this is the right way. You're right. the heretics, or right? Whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, it, especially with regard to the Pope himself, you know, he said some pretty terrible things. You're the Antichrist. He said, you're not Christ. You're the Antichrist. You're, you're actually doing the things that Christ commands you not to do in his name. And uh, so yeah, it, it really, Luther never feared for his soul in that way. He, he really didn't. Uh, he just thought the post was, Pope was way past any authority that he had to do anything in 1521. He wouldn't have thought that early on, uh, he, you know. His earlier writings reflect a, a great deal of affinity for what he had learned, and, but he moved away from it. Are there any other questions? The selling of indulgences was one of the things that Martin Luther reacted so strongly mm-hmm. against. And one of the reasons that the Catholic Church was doing that was the profit motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you indicated that even today, they're still climbing the steps and going through some of that. Is the profit motive still the same thing that is driving that? It's not as much a profit. Uh, well, now this is opinion at this point. <laughs> uh, my opinion is that it's not the profit, it's the control. Hmm. You know, uh, now it's more about control because uh, after Vatican II, because you had Council of Trent, that was a big deal after Reformation, then Vatican I took place, now he had Vatican II. Vatican II reveals something about Roman Catholicism that is startling and that Trent would have never understood because under Vatican II, everybody believes in Jesus. Even if it's Mohammed, you know, uh, because there's kind of this inclusiveness. And that's a whole lot about being relevant in the world. But once again, this is all opinion. Right, so I, I'm not an authority yeah, that, on that. That but. feels like it has roots in Constantine. I mean, it just goes all the way back where well, the, yeah. the pagan yeah. influence that came into yeah. the church. It also 
they wouldn't connect it. It also sounds like preparation for the Antichrist where everybody believes the same thing. Because the Roman Church still has a lot of influence. So if they've started this thought with Vatican II of everybody believes in Jesus, they just give him a different name, mm -hmm. that sounds like preparation for when the Antichrist comes, who's supposed to come out of Rome, of taking that thought and then putting it on the world to where everybody's following the same thing. You get no argument from Luther. He'd be 100% <laughs> affirming what you're saying. <laughs> uh.